All right, our scripture reading this morning is from uh, Mark 5, 21 through, I think, 43. Again, that's Mark 5, 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said to herself, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Good morning. Good to be here with you all. A little breezy. Okay. Um... Let me pray and we will jump into this passage together. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you, Lord God, for the fact that you are with us, that you know us and you accept us just as we are. And Lord, you love us to accept us and you love us not to leave us exactly where we are. You're always working on us. You're always challenging us. You're always putting us in a position Lord God, well, we will have to trust you. And Lord, we would be able to look back and say, yes, God has been faithful. God has helped us. God has always been with us and he has never forsaken us. And for that, Lord, we thank you. And we take that of the past and we look into the future and we recognize, Lord God, just as you have not forsaken us in the past, you will not forsake us in the future. You will demonstrate your steadfast love. You will demonstrate your, your patience to us and your kindness. And we thank you for that, Lord. So teach us to live by faith 
Lord, help us to live by faith. By the power of the Spirit, help us, your people as individuals and as a corporate body of Christ, Lord, to live our lives by faith. Help us to see, Lord Jesus, that you are the God who develops our faith. You are the one who sovereignly orchestrates all the circumstances of our lives, Father, to accomplish all of your good purposes and all of your purposes for those who are in Christ are always good. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we rejoice in that. I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower me and empower all of us to hear this message of encouragement this morning. We pray, Lord God, that you would help me to clarify the things you want to say to your people. Lord, may I not get in the way of that. So speak to your people, I pray. Lord, I thank you for the Gundersons. I lift them up to you. I thank you for David and Carmen. I thank you for their relationship. Thank you that they are yours, that they belong to you, and that they are serving in your kingdom. I pray, Lord God, that you would continue to advance your kingdom through them, through education that transforms. Lord, as they incarnate the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would see the hands and feet of Jesus as they encounter David and Carmen. And Lord, I pray that we would accept David's call, that you would help us to understand what your will is for Glory of Christ Fellowship in Elk River in 2021 that we would have clarity around that, Lord God, and that we would see how we fit into that, Lord. Give us a heart, give us a passion to serve in your kingdom and to make it go forward. So we pray that and we accept that call, we accept that challenge as your church, as your people. So we thank you for the Gundersons. We pray that you would richly provide all their needs and continue to bless their ministry. I pray that this time would have been restful for them. I pray, Lord God, that as you move them on, to their trainings and then ultimately back to Niger, Lord, I pray that you would be with them every step of the way. We thank you for them. We just ask that uh, you would use this time now. We give it to you. We realize it's a gift. We give it to you, Lord God, and that you would do with it according to your good pleasure for the glory of your name and for the advancement of your kingdom and the joy of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Okay, so the average person <clears throat> spends how long throughout their lifetime waiting in lines or in queues? Any guesses on that? How long does the average person spend in their lifetime waiting in lines or waiting in queues? If you guessed five years, you are right. Five years of your life is waiting in lines, waiting in queues. That's a long time. Imagine getting in a line, I'll get in this line, I'll be back in 2026. Um, hold all my calls. Now that's a significant amount of time, like I just said. But really, if you think about it, it doesn't really scratch the surface of other things that you wait in life waiting for. The time that you really spend waiting. When you think about the time that you spend waiting for certain things to happen, or circumstances to change, or people to change, or maybe yourself to change, to receive things that you might want, or maybe things that you need. Maybe you could say that your entire life is really just one big ball of waiting. And as Christians, we think about Christ at the end of it all. We're waiting for the return of Jesus. Life is summarized, we could say, by waiting 
It might be one of the most characterizing headings to categorize our existence is this idea of waiting. And how many of us really like waiting? I don't. You tell your kids, wait. They don't like that. Now, this brings us to the perspective or puts into perspective just how important the virtue of patience is, right? What is patience? We could say maybe this. Well, here's one way to look at it. One description says this. Patience is love for the long haul. Patience is love for the long haul. It is bearing up under difficult circumstances without giving up or giving in to bitterness. Patience means working when gratification is delayed. It means taking what life offers, even if it means suffering, without lashing out. That's a good description of patience, I think. It talks about waiting. It talks about the kind of waiting that you do, too. It describes the kind of waiting that you do so without giving up or giving in to bitterness. And I think as, as we look at this, we, we look at it like, like this, really patience requires faith. Biblical faith and patience at some point merge together and we see how valuable faith really is. It's valuable to Jesus. It should be valuable to us. I think I pressed on this a few weeks ago. Our faith is very valuable to Christ. Your faith is very valuable to Christ. In fact, one of the things that we learn from Jesus in these episodes is the way that he values faith and the way that he works on faith. Jesus works on your faith and he's never done with it. He's always pressing in and he's always calling us to deeper levels of it. He's always purifying it more purely. He's never giving up. And in this particular passage, we could argue that the emphasis actually isn't on who Jesus is, I mean, that is important, but really on our faith and how we respond to Jesus. So let me break this passage down for us, this passage that involves really two stories. And I want to look at this, these, these stories or this episode through the lens of the main characters. And there's basically two main characters. There's Jairus, and then there's this woman. So let's start with Jairus, shall we? Who is this guy? He was a leader in the synagogue. Now we're back in Jewish territory. Last week we talked about Jesus being in Gentile territory. He leaves. He's back in Jewish territory and the focus is back on the Jews. It is on Israel. In fact, Mark subtly draws our attention to Israel as a whole by mentioning that his daughter was 12 years old. And then how many years did the woman with the hemorrhage suffer under this condition? Well, it was 12 years. That's a biblical number, and it hearkens our attention to the 12 tribes of Israel, perhaps. So Jesus has something to say to Israel as a whole and their faith as a whole, the way that they follow and respond to Christ as a whole. And I'll circle back to that a little bit more at the end. Jairus has a daughter. She's sick at the time. 60 percent, 60 percent of kids that survived the womb died in their mid-teens. Can you imagine that? Six out of ten kids at the time of Jesus would actually die um, in their mid-teens. So when this Jairus desperately comes to Jesus and falls down at his on his knees to beg Jesus, 
He's desperate, and it's because there's a desperate situation. You can understand, my daughter's not looking so good. Six out of ten of them will die in their mid-teens. There's a real situation on our hands. The situation really was desperate. And notice Jairus's situation gets interrupted by this unknown woman with this blood hemorrhage. Now, can you imagine the relief of Jairus? Put yourself in his shoes. All right. Jesus is going to come and see me. I got in first in line at the Mayo Clinic. I, he's going to come to my house. My problem is solved. All my fears can be assuaged now. Now, think about what happens. They don't go according to plan exactly. At least not for Jairus. Obviously, this is a life and death situation. We've got a life and death situation on our hands. And time is of the essence. I think we would all agree with that. And surely Jesus understands this, doesn't he? Doesn't Jesus understand the situation? I mean, what do you think? He's the good shepherd. Does he understand what's at stake here? Does he understand that there's a little girl's life hanging in the balance? There's a father who loves his daughter dearly. And time is of the essence. And guess what happens? There's a woman who touches. There's a, thro- there's, a, there's a crowd that gathers around Jesus. Oh, let's go, let's go to his next gig. All right, this will be fun. What will Jesus do now? Well, this woman wrestles her way in through that. And now that the, Jesus' attention is diverted to this woman. And perhaps for this woman, you could say, well, that's good news for her. But really, is it good news for Jairus? Think about Jairus right now. Your little daughter is at home sick. She's on her deathbed. Time is of the essence. And now Jesus is distracted. What's going through his mind? What are you thinking if you're Jairus in this moment? Probably, you know, Jesus, uh, I know you're really popular, but uh, you know, my daughter, you mind staying focused on that? You think we could circle back perhaps because she might die. So the situation is such, he's probably thinking something along these lines. And can you imagine how horrible the news would have been for Jairus when the, when the sound waves hits his ears? Your daughter's dead. His worst fears are now realized. What's going through your mind and what's going through your heart as you encounter or as you think about being Jairus in this moment? You know, Jesus, if you wouldn't have gotten distracted with this woman, if you would have just stayed focused, perhaps, perhaps you could have gotten there in time. Perhaps you could have touched her. Perhaps you could have saved her life. Maybe something like that was going through his mind. I know, <laughs> maybe you're not like me, but I know that's what would be going through my mind. It would have been nice, Jesus, if you would have just stayed focused. It was, I, I thought you understood that my daughter was dying and now she's gone. And the opportunity was missed. And that's upsetting. And they, inclu- they conclude, all hope is lost. Why bother him any longer? It's pointless. Let's move on with our lives. She's gone. Mission or uh, opportunity missed. And for some reason, Jesus was powerful, powerful enough to heal the little girl. But to be resurrected from the dead. No, that's just way too. That wasn't a category. You see, that wasn't a category that they had at their thinking at this point. I guess we could understand that. Now, even though we're not given much window into the thoughts of Jairus until this point, we can see how uh, Jesus upends all convention. Doesn't he? 
I mean, if you had a woman with a 12-year ailment and a little girl at the point of death in the same emergency room, and if you're a doctor in today's standards, and you spend time on the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage while the little girl on the other side of the curtain dies, you would be sued for malpractice. Jesus would have been sued for malpractice in this moment. Jesus totally upends all convention. Do you, do you realize that? He completely upends it. He offends our modern sensibilities. Do you see how offensive this is? Jesus is offensive to our modern sensibilities. Nothing about this makes any sense at all. It really doesn't. It doesn't make sense. <clears throat> and it probably wouldn't have made sense to G uh, Jairus either. In essence, though, Jairus says, or Jesus says to him, you know what? I want you to trust me. I know all hope seems lost, but I want you to trust me. Tim Keller said this, that if you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on Jesus, you will struggle to feel loved by him. If we try to impose our standard, or how does he say that? Um, if we try to impose our understanding of schedule and timing on Jesus, you will struggle to be loved by him. So in a sense, really, you know, our culture, our modern sensibilities, our, the things that seem logical to us, that's good and right in many ways. But if you, if you really hold Jesus to that, and if that becomes the defining lens by which you understand Christ, you will struggle to feel loved by him. Because inevitably, I think what it is saying, inevitably Jesus will break outside of the confines of our modern sensibility and our form of what we consider to be logic and fair and right and good. Jesus transcends all of that. And you cannot, like I was saying, I think a couple weeks ago, you can't put Jesus into this little box. You really cannot confine him to this little understanding. He transcends all of these things. So, so Jesus, I think, comes to Jairus and he poses this question. He invites him to faith. Do you trust me? Even when all hope seems lost, do, will you put your faith in me? And uh, uh, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. I'm going to move on to the woman. Let's talk about her right now. First of all, notice the way that the woman is contrasted to Jairus. Jairus is this big shot ruler of the synagogue. He's got some power. He's got some influence. He's got some clout. He has a name. We're told that his name is Jairus. The woman, no name. There's no identity really given. She's just a woman. And really, by contrast, she's a woman in an ancient Jewish culture. Women were second-class citizens. That's just the way kind of it was. They were of less importance. They were of less significance. They were lowly. Jairus is given a name. We know him. We don't really know the woman. She's just kind of just there. She's a woman who's not given a name. By contrast, she doesn't have the power. She doesn't have the clout. She doesn't have the influence that Jairus has. Now, according to Leviticus, um, a woman was unclean during her period, and she would have had to remain at home. And that means that her family, uh, I mean, her family that lives with her, this applies to everybody else outside of that as well, wouldn't be allowed to lie in her bed. They wouldn't be allowed to sit in the chair that she sat in. They wouldn't be allowed to actually touch her physically. And if they did, they would have to bathe, they would have to clothe or wash all of their clothes and that they would be considered unclean until evening time. 
Uh, women uh, during their period would have been prevented from entering the temple. They would have been excluded from all of the religious feasts. In fact, they would have been excluded from interacting in normal society. And this was all to prevent the impurity from infringing upon the realm of God's holiness. Because this impurity, this uncleanness, which is actually a right idea, that impurity cannot, cannot dwell with purity. Now, the application of it is incorrect, I would argue. But this idea that impurity and uncleanness cannot interact, cannot, cannot muddy the waters of holiness, is why they would separate women in their time of the month. And this particular woman had a menstrual hemorrhage, which means that she was bleeding not just during her period, but always. And that put her essentially on a 12-year quarantine. That put her in the state of uncleanness for 12 years. That means nobody was able to touch her for 12 years. Nobody was able to lie in her bed. Nobody was able to sit in her seat. She wasn't able to go into the temple. She wasn't able to participate in the temple practices or the religious feasts. She wasn't able to really participate in normal society for 12 years. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in that kind of a quarantine? And so when she came jostling through the crowd to touch Jesus, it would have been highly risky. Do you just realize the guts that it would have taken for her to do this? Just on the basis of a female reaching out to a male, this would have been highly inappropriate. But for an unclean woman to go through this crowd, she would have put many people at risk. She would have compromised probably the integrity of a lot of people, and she doesn't care. She just barrels through. <clears throat> now, this was a small village, too. We can point this out, where everyone would have known everyone, and everyone would have known that she was unclean. So to do something like this really would have put her in exposure to being shamed, to being ridiculed, to being scorned. Now, just touching the garments of Jesus caused the, her bleeding to dry up. And then Jesus turns around and says, who touches me or who touched me? And that's amazing. Just touching the garments of Christ, she's healed. And Jesus in the crowd, and his disciples say, what, what, what do you mean who, who touched you? There's a thousand people touching you, pressing in on you. Jesus understands, no, somebody touched me. Um... In a different way, perhaps. And he's, uh, there, there's power that is released. I, I don't understand all of the details of this, but that's what we learn in the scripture. Power is released. He senses that and he turns to this woman. And of course, at this time, when Jesus turns to her, what is she? She's scared. And why is she scared? Probably because she has broken all kinds of laws. She's broke like 37 laws in the process of getting to this point. And now, Jesus sets her gaze, his gaze, to try to find this woman. Who is this person that touched me? Oh, no, I'm in trouble. She's probably thinking. And Jesus doesn't turn to her to scorn her, to scold her. He turns to her to teach her something. What does he teach her? He teaches her that it was her faith that made her well. And he wants her to understand this. He wants her to understand that it was actually her act of faith that caused her healing. This is what Jesus says. And perhaps at the time we could say that one of the alternatives here would have been kind of superstition. There was a kind of superstition that kind of pervaded the way of thinking. Um, if I could just touch his garments, I'll be healed. They actually had, I mean, I read in one commentary, 
they had all kinds of like concoctions to put together, like drink a warm bowl of milk 30 minutes after you eat dinner, followed by 12 black beans while, you know, reciting some uh, incantations or something. And, and that will heal you. They had all kinds of superstitious type of ways. So perhaps maybe that was the thinking that Jesus was trying to combat. He was probably, but nonetheless, he wanted her to understand, you know what? It wasn't superstition. It wasn't anything else. It was your faith. It was your faith that made you well. This is the reason why I'm healing you. This is the reason why you are finding healing in me. It's because of your faith. Um, <clears throat> so he turns to her not to scold her, but he wants her to understand that it was her that, that it was her faith that made her well. Um, <clears throat> and she shows faith, not just by jostling through the crowd, not just by stopping at nothing to get to him, but also when he turns to her, she's honest to him. She doesn't know if she's going to get reprimanded. She doesn't know if she's in deep trouble or not. Who touched me? Well, okay, it was me. She confesses. She gives herself up. So Jesus sees faith in her probably because she went to him, she sees faith in him because she was honest with him right there before the Savior. It was me. And she confesses and she lays herself bare, totally exposed before the Savior. Okay, so let me get to some concluding thoughts. This is a little bit perhaps more than usual, but number one, let me just say this. What do we make of this? What, what kind of sense can we spin this into? When we see Jairus, we see this woman what is Jesus trying to say? What is Mark trying to say to us when he puts these stories together? Um, well, first of all, let me just say this. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is a compassionate Savior. Notice that both healings feature women. Women were the least and the lowliest in their time, and Jesus prioritizes them. Really, this is shocking, actually. This is shocking for him to prioritize these two women who were not significant, the fact that he prioritizes them shows his compassion. And when Jesus responds to the woman after healing her, he calls her daughter. Do you notice that? This woman who is healed of this 12-year ailment calls her daughter. Now, Jairus had a daughter. Jairus had a daughter who he cared very deeply about. You realize that? My daughter is sick. She's at the point of death. I beg you. She fall, he falls down on his knees. And he begs Jesus. You know, and I think the way that Jesus feels about, oh, I'm sorry, the way that Jairus feels about his daughter, I would suggest to you, is the way that Jesus feels about this woman. And it's the way that he feels about you. All of you are sons and daughters in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, the way that Jesus feels about you is the way he feels about this woman. The way that Jairus feels about his own daughter. The way a father agonizes over the possible death of his daughter is the way that Jesus loves you. He cares for you. He wants your best. He, uh, he, he, he pursues your best. He always has the best for you in mind, always no exceptions. So you are a daughter. You are a son of Christ. If you are in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, Jesus is compassionate. Another thing we can say is that Jesus demands and he rewards faith. Jesus demands faith. He rewards faith. And one of the things that we learned from this episode is that it's constructed in a certain way. It's A1, B, A2. So A, B, A. A1, B, A2. So the, there's a sandwich going on here. Right? He starts in with Jairus, shifts focus to the woman, finishes with Jairus. 
And the way that this works, this construction, is that B, the center part, gives shape to A. So the reason why he interjects this story of the woman in the middle is because, you know, if he just read Jairus and then he just finished up, it wouldn't have the same effect as if he interjects this story of the woman in the middle of it. And really, I think what he's teaching us is that, um, that uh, Jesus says to Jairus at the end of it, don't fear, only believe. And really, B is what gives shape to A. The center story gives shape to the story of Jairus. So the story of the woman gives shape to the story of Jairus. So we could ask ourselves, when Jesus says to Jairus, don't fear, only believe, what kind of faith should Jairus have? And the answer is this. He should have the faith that the woman had. <laughs> That's the lesson that Jesus, I think, is giving us here. That's the lesson that Mark is giving us here. Here's Jairus, this religious leader, and he's getting schooled by this woman, this no-name woman, this lowly person in society that would have been passed over. And Jesus is essentially saying, this is the kind of faith I want you to have. I want you to have the faith of this woman. This is the kind of faith I want you to have, Jairus. He's getting, he's getting schooled. He's getting a lesson by this woman. So what kind of faith should he have? He should have the faith of the woman. The woman is the one who exemplifies and defines faith for Jairus, which means to trust Jesus patiently without bitterness, despite everything to the contrary. Have this kind of faith, Jairus. Trust Jesus patiently. Don't give up and don't give in to your bitterness. Because as we talked about before, that's you know a description of patience. Have the kind of faith that doesn't give up and doesn't give in to bitterness, even when things don't go the way that they, you think they, they should. Even when all hope seems lost, don't give up and don't give in to bitterness. Faith in Christ is the great equalizer, we could say this. Oh, and before I get into that, perhaps I could circle back and say, what is Jesus saying to Israel here? This is a warning. This is a warning to the Israelites, to the people of God who thought, we were in. This is our God. We're, we're the people of God. Well, um, you have something to learn. You have something to learn about faith, Jesus says. You have, you have quite a, a few things to learn about faith. And if you look at the very next episode in chapter 6, what is it? Jesus is rejected in his hometown. Jesus should have been, I mean, Jairus should have faith. He's a religious leader in the synagogue. And his hometown, his own people that know Jesus, they should have faith as well. And here's the warning. The warning is, don't miss it. Don't not have faith in Christ. Believe in Jesus. They rejected him. They saw his works. They rejected him. They didn't believe that he was Jesus. And, and Jesus was warning the Jews, don't be in this category. Be warned. Be warned. The Jews who thought they were the people of God, actually, they missed him because they did not exercise faith. They didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. They didn't believe that he was God. And I think that's one of, the, one of the warnings that Jesus offers through this. And we could say this too. I was getting at this before. Faith is the great equalizer. Faith in Christ is the great equalizer. Notice this, this irony. Ironically, uh, Jairus is a ruler and he's, uh, he's powerful in the synagogue. And yet he finds no advantage where it really matters. Do you realize that? Him and this woman are on totally equal footing. When it really matters... Where it really mattered to Jairus, he finds himself utterly hopeless. And so does the woman. She's utterly hopeless. And in that case, they are two peas in a pod. They are two people in the same boat paddling in the same river. They are utterly hopeless. 
And where it really matters, you know, Jesus, I think, reduces humanity to its essence. What really matters in life and where it really matters, it didn't matter that he was the leader of the synagogue. It didn't matter that he had this clout. It didn't matter that he had any influence. It mattered nothing where it really counted. So this story warns all people everywhere not to boast in their money, not to boast in their status, not to boast in their health, not to boast in their influence, not to boast in anything. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me, the living God. And when it comes down to it, everyone is a sinner, and therefore we are all, every person on planet Earth is on equal footing. We are equally as helpless to deal with our sin problem. We have equally the same daunting mountain, the insurmountable mountain of sin before us. All of us are on equal footing in that, where it really matters. Eternity, when eternity is in view, where it really matters, everyone is equally as hopeless. And only faith in Christ matters at that point. Do you see that? The only distinguishing factor between where it really matters in, in a person's life is the eternity of their souls and their state before God. And the only thing that really changes that is whether you believe in Christ or whether you do not. You might have a lot of money. You might have a lot of influence. You might have a lot of power. But none of that matters in the end of the day when your soul is on the line and when you face a judge, when heaven and earth and when, when eternity is on the line to be judged forever. And in that case, every person on planet Earth must realize they are all in the same boat. And the only distinguishing factor that really matters is whether you have faith in Christ or not, whether you believe. And it matters about Jesus. We must believe in Jesus because he is the only God. He is the only king who actually went to the cross, who died in your place, who gave his life as a sacrifice for all, who paid for your sin, and paves the way back to reconciliation with the living God. He is the only one who is able to do that. So therefore, what you think about Jesus and what you believe about him, whether you believe in him or not, whether you reject him or accept him, that is the defining characteristic of every single person on planet Earth. That is the true, that is the true distinguishing feature. And if you believe in Christ, if you believe in him, if you trust in him with your soul, you will have salvation. You will be cleansed of your sin. You are clean and you are reconciled to the living God. You have an eternal, uh, an eternal hope. You have an eternal future with the living God. And if you don't, you face separation from God throughout eternity. And it doesn't matter if you are great here or nobody here. The, level, the playing field is completely level before God in Christ. And that's good news because you know what? You don't have to have social status to come to God. You must have faith. And that's it. That is it. You must have faith. Jesus is the rewarder of faith. Okay, third point. Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the healer. Now, the Hebrew term for healed is yasha. Yasha. Y a S-H-A-W, Yasha. And it is the variant of the Hebrew name for, uh, I'm sorry, it's the variant of the Hebrew name of Jesus, which is Yeshua. So this term can either mean healed or saved. 
And we see the heart of Christ for his people who suffer under sin. We see the heart of Christ in this passage. We do. And yes, we are guilty of sin. That's true. All of us are guilty of sin. And it does condemn us. But Jesus saves. And he doesn't just save, he heals. For Jesus to be Savior is also for him to be healer. And if you are saved by Christ, you are also being healed. And Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus saves your soul, yes, but he also heals you too. He heals you on the outside. He heals you on the inside. Jesus is the God who is Yeshua. He saves you, not just in a kind of a mechanical, scientific, mathematical way. You're justified. You're stamped clean. You're stamped righteous. Jesus is the Savior who comes to you, who loves you as a good friend, as a good shepherd. And he says, I know your pain. I know your hurt. I know where you are hurting. And I care about it. And I desire your wholeness. Jesus is the God who desires you to be whole. His intention all the time and forevermore at any point is for you to be healed, for you to be saved, for you to be whole. And what he's teaching us here is that the only way for that really to happen is to know this Christ and to be saved by him because he is Yeshua. He is the Savior. He is the healer. And for you as his son, as his daughter, he desires this all the time for you, that you would be healed, that you would be saved, that you would be whole, that you would be completely whole in knowing him. And, in, and I can say this, at the same time, this is a bit of a conundrum, as much as Jesus desires you to be saved and as much as he desires you to be whole, he will put you in hard circumstances to get that done. So do not confuse, brothers and sisters, the difficulty that you face. You guys each face difficulty in your own life. There's a time where all of you, whether, whether you're here today or whether you were there yesterday, you will probably be there in the future when you're going to be in Jairus' spot. Why? Why? What? Why did you do it this way, Jesus? Why did you put me in this spot? And we notice that Jesus' ultimate goal isn't always to put you in a comfortable situation. To appease your sensibilities. That's not his ultimate goal. He will put you in a fire. He will put you at a place where you are utterly baffled. He will. And the call here is, trust me. Will you trust me? Will you trust me when all hope seems lost? That's the kind of faith I want you to have. And I think that's a call for us as God's people, as our church. Will you trust me? And I think this, I mean, when I think about our elders meeting yesterday, it was exciting. I, I share Eric's excitement because we sat there. We prayed yesterday morning at 7 a.m. when we started. We prayed for an hour. We prayed that God would give us clarity. We prayed that God would Give us a sense that, oh, this is manageable. We have a plan going forward, and there it's manageable. And I think when I think about the timing of all, of all of that, when I think about the timing of our church and where we're at, when I think about the timing of our elders meeting, when I think about the fact that we land on this passage right here this morning, I can't help but conclude that God is saying to all of us, do you trust me? There's many ways in which over the last year, we could point to a number of different ways where it seems all hope is lost. I mean, I said to the elders yesterday, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, there's no reason why we should be here this morning. There's no reason why this church should exist. 
Really, we should have been done ten times over. And yet God has sustained us. He has done something. The fact that we're here this morning, do you guys realize? I believe this. Maybe you don't, but I do. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. And in many ways, you know, I don't want to dwell on the past too much. We think about the past, but it's time to look forward to the future. There is a future. And it's time to be excited about that because it's time for us to trust. I mean, really, it's always been time. But really, trust me, GCF. Do you trust me? Will we collectively put our hands in the Savior's hand and let him guide us and lead us? And in time, I don't know when that time is, hopefully tomorrow, maybe this afternoon would be great too. I don't know when that time is. Jesus will show up. He will demonstrate his power. He will demonstrate. He he will say, I've heard your prayer. I care about you, my son, my daughter. I desire to be healed. I desire you to come to wholeness in me. God has a will. He has a future for us. We are to make disciples. We are to be a part of the kingdom of God. We move forward in faith. And that's exciting. And another thing we could say about Mark chapter 5 This is called uh, the St. Jude chapter. The St. Jude chapter. Why? What is that? Well, St. Jude was the saint of hopeless causes. The saint of hopeless causes. And this chapter is referred to, I guess, in the scholarly theological circles as the St. Jude chapter. Because if we go back into the beginning of the chapter, what do we see? The demoniac. The garrison demoniac. We see him who's hopeless. We see this woman who has this 12-year ailment. She's hopeless. We see Jairus' daughter. She's hopeless. It's the chapter of hopeless causes. All of these are hopeless. And you know what? They all find salvation in Christ. They all find, and all of them transfer their uncleanness to Jesus. Do you realize that? All three of them, they transfer their uncleanness to Jesus. Jesus takes their uncleanness and he makes them whole. (laughs) What a glorious Savior we have. Jesus is the Savior who takes our uncleanliness. He takes our sin and he makes us whole. He cleanses us. He brings us to wholeness and, and and to fulfillment. He restores us to the image of God and the image of God is restored in us. And we're called to be his sons and daughters in this world and to bear his image. What a privilege that is. That's something worth getting exciting about, excited about. And that's something worth, you know, when he calls us to make disciples, to go into this world. And when we think about this woman as well, think about this woman. Do we have compassion for the person who has spent everything that this world has to offer? And they got nothing in return. It says in Mark 5, she spent everything she had. She didn't even have much to begin with. She's already at a lowly place in society. She has nothing to begin with. And you know what? She spends it all. And what does she get in return? Nothing. She's actually worse off after it. Isn't that a picture of our culture who turns to the gods of our day? And they spend and they exert and they give everything for it and they get nothing in return. That's a picture of the idolatry of our culture. That's the picture of the hopelessness that society offers us. We have no hope anywhere but Christ. Christ is the one that really salvation is free. You ever hear this? Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. There is no middle ground when it comes to faith. You don't have to spend a dime to be saved by Jesus' blood. It's totally free, but it will cost you everything. He demands faith. And there is no middle ground, you see. There is no middle ground. 
when you think about faith. You ever heard this 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 thing? Everything in moderation. You ever you guys hear that? Okay, that that's that that that's good. I would I would say that that's a good proverb, a cultural proverb, to live by in most situations, except for Jesus. We should not do Jesus in moderation. You should not have faith in Jesus in moderation. Unconventional faith is needed. The kind of faith that is needed is the kind of faith that will say, I will do anything and everything to get to Jesus, to just touch his garment. I will do that. And Jesus rewards that unconventional faith. And in fact, Jesus is just as unconventional. He's like, you know what? I found a friend in you. I'm just as unconventional too. I was going to heal a man, a man's daughter, and I stopped and I talked to you while she died. (laughs) I'm making light of this. It's really not. But you guys get what I'm saying here. Jesus is unconventional too. He will break convention, and he rewards the unconventional. Look at us. We're sitting out here on this lawn. (laughs) This is unconventional. But God, I think, is pleased with this faith. You know what? We'll stop at nothing. We will meet out here. We'll bump our our service back 30 minutes last week. We'll, We'll meet in the downpour. Heck yeah, we'll do it. That's unconventional. We will stop at nothing. To, to seek Jesus, to go to him, to find him. Jesus is the rewarder of unconventional faith. Everything in moderation except when it comes to trusting Jesus. Your faith in Christ, not in moderation. All in. All in. And that's what he rewards. That's what he blesses. And do we have a heart, GCF? I mean, I pray that God would cause our hearts to shatter to break for the person in our community who spends it all trying to find healing by the doctors, by the sages, by the people who are touted as wise. And they're no better off. In fact, they might be worse. Because only Christ has the words of life. Only Jesus has the words of life. And only wholeness and only healing and only salvation can happen in Christ. Can I get an amen on that? And we have the keys of heaven. We have the words of life. We have it. So may we make disciples and may we have a heart for those in our community. May we have a heart for those globally who are looking for love in all the wrong places, as it says. They're bowing down to their idols. They're spending all they have and they get nothing in return. Only Christ is the one who pays back and pays back eternally. And he makes us whole. Let's pray. Father, we pray you'd use us. We're a small, insignificant church. We are the woman in this passage. But you care. You care about the woman. You care about the lost. You care about the lowly. I pray that you would call us up and that you would give us, Father, the kind of faith that pleases you. And where we don't have that faith, where we doubt, where we have grown bitter, we confess it and we ask for forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for where we have grown bitter, where we have become impatient with you, where we have doubted you. Please heal us and help us. And Lord, we call on you yet again. Establish this church, we pray. Lead us to the place where you want us to meet. Give us that space, we pray. We ask that you would demonstrate your power so that we would all collectively be able to look at it and say, God has done this. Glory be to our God. We thank you for sustaining us. We thank you for our fellowship, Lord. I pray that it would be sweet. I pray, Lord God, that our love for each other would abound. I pray, Father, that you would just tenderly administer your mercies to us day by day and give us great joy and 
laying our lives down for you. I pray, Father, that um, you would give us your will. Help us to see, Lord God, what doing the will of the Father in heaven looks like for us in this year. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.